With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey, Cracked fans. Just a quick message before we start today's podcast. You are listening to our Great Shot podcast, Best of the Decade series, looking at the best storylines, results, and controversies from the 2010s in tennis. Today's topic, a particular favorite of mine and all of us at Cracked Rackets, the top American storylines of the 2010s. There were so many results to talk about over these past 10 years of tennis, obviously, uh, but to look at America specifically, the big story on the men's side. No Grand Slam champions, no Grand Slam finalists for the first decade ever in ATP history. On the women's side, it was the exact opposite. You had, shockingly, despite it being mostly in her 30s, Serena Williams may have had her best decade of tennis. Venus Williams persistence. Sloan Stevens became a single slam champion. Madison Keys in her rise. Amanda Nisimova, Sophia Kennan, Coco Gauff on the double side. Coco Vandeweghe, uh, Bethany Maddox-Sands as well. So there were so many different things we wanted to cover in today's podcast. That is why we are talking about American tennis with the only guy I could think of who follows it. I would say closer than I do, the guy who really will remember every storyline from the decade, the one and only Jonathan Kelly of On The Rise blog fame. You may know him as at Joe Kelly underscore tennis on Twitter. He's taken a bit of a hiatus from the tennis Twitter universe, but that does not mean tennis is not on his mind still. And so he joined me today to break down all of these topics. Now, listeners should know that the original podcast ran two and a half hours long. I mean, we did 10 storylines, a bunch of other superlatives as well, but that speaks to the depth this podcast gets into. And of course, rather than throw the entire two and a half hours at you at once. Our super producers, Fligner and Westhoff, decided it would probably be a little smarter to divide it into parts. So what you are about to listen to is part one of our conversation. In this part, we discuss Serena Williams, Venus Williams, Sloane Stevens, and what we saw from the 10 years on the WTA uh, from the American women, the defining stories, the things that will stand out to us the most as American tennis fans when we look at the back at the 2010s, let's say 5, 10, 15, Hopefully, 40 years from now, this pod will still hold up. Uh, so that that's really our topics today. Parts two and three, we'll get into some of the ATP storylines, some of the other bigger picture things from American tennis, and those will come out, I believe, next week, if not later in the week. So be on the lookout for that. Uh, but with that in mind, here's part one of my conversation discussing American tennis over the 2010s with Jonathan Kelly. Welcome to, hey, Great Shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Cracked Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin, 
As you listeners know, we have been conducting our best of the decade series here at the Great Shot Podcast, looking back at the past 10 years of tennis, taking away the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the decades, the things we've learned, how the games changed, who, which players stood out the most, which players had chances to stood out that may have blown them for injury reasons, for other reasons, what worked well, what didn't, all of the many aspects of the tennis world. One thing we have not talked about yet a topic near and dear to our hearts here at Cracked Rackets. Uh, the past 10 years of American tennis, so much has gone on on both the men's and women's side, uh, both highlights and lowlights for very different reasons between the two tours. So many storylines to talk about as we look back at the 2010s, and there is only one person I could think of to bring on this podcast to talk about all of those things with. For us fans who grew up in the 2010s, really following tennis for the first time closely, his work throughout the decade at his On the Rise blog on Twitter at Joe Kelly underscore tennis was monumental to helping us follow what was what in the American tennis world. A repeat guest who we always like to bring on when we do a State of the Union of the American tennis world. And of course, as he likes to be known now, a tennis fluencer, Jonathan Kelly. Hey, great shot. And welcome back to the podcast. It has been far too long. Hey, Alex. Great shot. Good to see you or hear you. <laughs> oh, goofy off the bat. And I should say, I know we had schedule gate last year, but I believe this is our third-ish Thanksgiving in a row doing some sort of state of the union on American tennis. So this is a tradition I hope we can keep up. It's my longest relationship, I think. <laughs> actual relationship, of course. Uh, it's funny because you're joking around, but for me, like my mom will hear that joke and she's going to be like, I think that is your longest relationship, Alex. Three years is a lot. And so uh, it, you joke around. But seriously, I guess we'll start off by saying I would not have followed tennis or have been able to follow tennis nearly as closely without all of the work you did at the start and throughout the decade. So for, on behalf of the tennis community, Jonathan, thank you and welcome back. You've been a missed voice on the tennis Twitter verse. Good. It's nice to be missed. <laughs> Better than overstaying your welcome, I think. See, this is how the podcast goes over two hours because we're going to start talking about this. Seriously, I, I, I think I told you this before, but I have gotten DMs and texts like, hey, do you know what happened to Jonathan Kelly? And I like to make up different things each time. I'm like, you're not going to believe this, but he <laughs> found the Loch Ness Monster. And, like, <laughs> and, you know, or just a range of different things. But I know you got to go to Champagne to catch uh, some tennis there. Obviously, Champagne was a funky result. We had a J.J. Wolf-Sebastian Corda final. Um, I, I Since we're not going to talk about th those two guys probably throughout the course, I just want to quickly ask your thoughts. How was Champagne? What was it like getting back in the action? You know, I went to Champagne in Winnetka this year. I, I really do enjoy live tennis. I love um, uh, following tennis still. I just, uh, I you know, I, I, I'm off of the tennis Twitter and uh, I don't, I miss it sometimes, but it kind of uh, feels a little bit weirdly liberating to, uh, to not be thinking about it. Um, but yeah, so the, the champagne, it was a one day trip. I was under the weather, unfortunately. I don't have a clear memory of that day other than <laughs> the, uh, the really pretty good burger I had. Um, but, uh, you know, it was, it's just sort of weird. The uh, We'll be talking a little bit about the... Um, uh, the the young guns who are now transitioning to the main tour or, you know, pretty much on the main tour. And uh, for the last several years, they'd been a real staple of the, of the later rounds of, 
so many different American challengers. So without them in there, the, the 97s, 98s, 96s, um, you know, Chris, Chris Eubanks and some others are still there, but um, Michael Moe, but, you know, a lot of them have, have moved up or have kind of been hampered uh, and so are not there. So it feels a little bit different. You don't have the same same faces and the same sort of like drama around, you know, are they going to make their breakthrough? Are they going to make it, you know, are they going to now transition out of the challenger tour? So it just sort of had a little bit of a funky vibe. Uh, but I, you know, there's some really good tennis, some great doubles that was played and, uh, you know, always good to be in a crowd of people who don't clap other than you. <laughs> Champagne is one of the most fun events simply because you never know what you're going to get. And I mean, we had a Kozlov resurgence for a hot second. That was great. That's another 98 or, um, yeah, we had guys, JJ Wolf fresh out of college after three years was so good. His senior year, the question is, you know, all of his results had come in Ohio on the pro tour. And now he gets his first challenger title outside of there still in Yes, still indoors, so, you know, not exact, and still a Big Ten school, so about as close as you can get to Columbus, but, um, you know, great result for him, but, yeah, this is what I, the the point is, the tennis offseason is short, and there will be challenger events, I know there's one coming to Ann Arbor in January, but they'll be back here before you know it, so seriously, listeners, go watch some live tennis, because it's everywhere, it's always a high, it's always a high quality of play, and I promise you will enjoy it if it's in your area, but, with that in mind, we have so much tennis to talk about. Ten years of tennis, in fact, from the American side. Men's, women's, we're going to try and cover all of the storylines, the biggest surprises, the biggest disappointments, uh, the best matches, the best players, all of these different things. Before we do that, Westoff, to kick off this Best of the Decade American podcast, can I get some sort of America sound effect, please? I'm actually really curious what he's going to go with, Jonathan. I could see the national anthem. I could see all of these different things. So I'm, I always like to leave it up to him to decide. But the place we wanted to start this conversation, and we have about 10 topics now. There will be tangents, listeners. This will definitely be divided into a two-part podcast. But I think when you look at the 2010s, just at the broadest scope, when you're looking at American tennis, what is the first thing that stood out to you? I think we can both agree. It's the fact that Serena Williams, this, you know, 10 years later, she was so good during the 2000s. I think she won her first slam in 1999, right? And 20 years later, that she is still playing at the level she is, that she won as many slams as she did this decade. I mean, that is the storyline from the 2010s of American tennis. Absolutely, no doubt. Um, Serena Williams was already a mega superstar um, who had won 11 Grand Slam titles, one of the greatest of all time, entering into the 2010s. And it wasn't really, you know, you would not have, I don't think anybody, anybody, even her, probably would have predicted that she would end up being in the final of the last Grand Slam of the decade. Um, it's just, it's stunning. It's uh, one of the greatest decades of any sports figure, individual sports figure um, ever, really. not Maybe not the greatest tennis, because Djokovic had such an incredible decade, as did Nadal, but um, given what she had already accomplished, for her to have this as a third act of tennis, um, she was in the first major final of the decade, and she was in the last major final of the decade. 
She won the first and lost the second, and that, that's part of the storyline uh, of how her decade went, but it's still tremendous and remarkable. I mean, there are a couple of different places to take this, but to start off with the big picture, again, for Serena Williams, she's, what, 38, 39 right now? So she started the decade at the end of her 20s, and you look at the amount of uh, slams she had coming in. She won one in 1999. She led the 2000s with her 10 Grand Slam titles. To lead even one decade in Slam titles is difficult enough. But then you look at the 2010s, and we talked about this on a previous Best of the Decade podcast when looking at those players on the WTA who came closest but ultimately didn't win a title. And as extensive as that list may be, 19 women won slams during the 2010s. It's not as though, you know, it's not like the men where the big four won them all and they kind of crouched everyone else out. Other people had chances. And yet through all of that, through multiple injuries, through having her first child, through all of these different circumstances, Stances. Serena Williams leads the decade with 12 slam titles. I mean, that alone is just staggering. Yep. And she also started the decade number one and finished the decade uh, or finished the year number one, three different years um, and number two, the following year. Um, and and then number had three, the previous year. Yeah. Um, and she, she also, like you said, had a baby and then came back after having a baby and still made four Grand Slam finals. So um, she won a whole bunch of titles. She had maybe her 2013 was one of the single greatest, you know, years of any sports person. Um, And, you know, she most importantly helped carry tennis for the decade, but, you know, women's tennis in particular for the decade, every match that she was on is must see TV. You know, her Q rating is off the chart. She became, a mega cultural icon for the 2010 for the 20 uh the 2000s it was sort of a venus and serena story of the decade um and but for the 2010s it was it was just serena she stood alone she um she became larger than the sport um you know she became one of the most famous people in the world Listen to this 10-slam stretch, which she did from ages, I believe, uh, 33 to 36. She went at 2014. She wins the U.S. Open. 2015, she then wins the Australian, wins the French, wins Wimbledon, semifinals of the U.S. Open. The next year, finals 2016 Australian Open, finals of the French Open, wins Wimbledon, semifinals U.S. Open, then starts 2017 with that Australian Open title. I mean, that's as good of a 10-slam stretch as you're going to find from any player in their careers ever, and she did this after the age of 30. I mean— when almost yes. every other yeah every other player has won their last major, you know. Yeah, and you talk about individual greatness. I mean, that's that's as good as it gets of any athlete of any sport, regardless of the context. That is domination of your sport. And yeah, as you mentioned, she ended uh, the year number one three times in that 2013 season. She goes 78 and four overall. She played 15 total tournaments. Of those 15, 13 finals, 11 titles. I mean, that's, as you mentioned, that's about as good of a season as you will ever put forward. It's reminiscent. The equivalent was the Djokovic season where he went like, what, 81 and six, I think in 2015 or something crazy. It's like, those are maybe the two best seasons ever in tennis history. And they both happened this decade. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'd say Steffi Graf probably had another 
season in there that was a little bit better, Martina or McEnroe. But they were definitely two of the best, no doubt. And, you know, women's tennis is more competitive than it was in the 80s. There's a lot more players who have a chance of beating anybody. Um, so the fact that she was the best of the most two most competitive decades in women's tennis, like the deepest, um, scariest for the top seeds, um, the most uh, uh, chaos, if you, if you will, at the top, the fact that she's able to maintain that consistently, you know, that's why she'll go down in, in history as the best ever. Yeah, and it's so funny because the season she misses, 2017, you look at the slam winners and what it sort of set off at that moment. I know Muguruza had had her first in 2016, but the fact that Ostapenko wins the 2017 French Open, Muguruza wins the Wimbledon, Sloan wins the U.S. Open, Wozniacki wins the next Australian Open, Halep wins her first slam at the French Open, and then obviously all the young players we've come on, we've seen come on as of late. No, she didn't crowd everyone else out. You know, there was still a Panetta title in there. There's Stozer had some, Azarenka, Kleisters, Marion Bartoli, of course, was another funky one. Um, but there, we really didn't see the rush of players until Serena missed a sustained period of time. And that's a testament to her excellence. Right. Um, and she would also, you know, routinely go into a tournament knowing that she was the only player who could beat herself. There was just really no no real rival to her. She didn't have a rival for the decade, which is, um, you know, also a testament to how good she was when she was at her best. And, you know, for, for the record, she also won, I think it was four doubles majors, and she had the most dominant uh, single match, which was a gold medal at the Olympics, one of the most dominant matches of all, of all time at a high, high level. So, uh, yeah, it was a pretty good decade. Yeah, I was going to say, you forgot the Olympic title, but then you threw it in. Yeah, every facet, when she entered the tournament, she was the favorite. And, like, that that speaks to everything she's done. And now the, the last thing, obviously, uh, in terms of superficially, that she, I'm sure, would like to accomplish, not that she needs to, but is to get that 24th and eventually, hopefully in her mind, that 25th Grand Slam to be number one all-time, to pass Margaret Court. Um I, I know she's made four finals over the past two years, so you can't discount that. But given the rise yeah, of all the most these, recent two. Yeah, exactly. And given the but given the rise of all of these talented young players who are all itching to get their first slam because it's open season right now in the WTA. What we learned through the first three Grand Slams, there are twelve different semifinalists. It's open season. Do you, I mean, I, I don't think you can discount until you see a sustained period, so maybe I just answered the question, but Serena's still in the hunt for 24, right? You expect her to compete and be there in the 2020 season. I I mean, I don't know what's been going on lately. She hasn't played a, a match, I don't think, since the U.S. Open final, but given that the match before that that she played, she only lost four games to Svitolina. You know, I, I think another story has to be this weird story of how the last couple of seasons have gone for Serena, um, in particular in finals, not just major finals, but but um, other tournament finals too. She can look dominant in a in a tournament and then weirdly just come up short in a final against players that she could beat. I mean. I I don't know exactly how to put this, and you know, 2019 was the year that I watched the least tennis. But um, 
even just from from following scores and from watching highlights, like there's it's almost like there's a mental block. And I'm sure other people have talked about this a lot. There seems to be she hasn't won what's weird about Serena Williams post having a baby and having this new life is that she won she she's won zero zero titles. Not not just slam titles, but but any titles. She's been to plenty of finals. So it's a weird thing because I think during the decade she won, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, thirty something titles, um, which is remarkable, but all came up until January twenty seventeen and nothing since. So um but yeah, I do consider her to be a threat in twenty twenty. You'd be foolish to ever counter out. Um she's had remarkable comebacks before and uh Anybody who's reached the most recent slam final, you know, uh, and been dominant in the semifinal, of course, of course, you have to give her a chance. I completely agree with you. I think, I I don't know if you're a big basketball guy, but uh, Bill Simmons, who writes about Michael Jordan's multiple peaks, there's, you know, him 1.0, 2.0, the first three-peat run, and then he comes back 3.0, and he's just so dominant, and he plays at his speed, and he just slows the game down, even though his athleticism has declined to where you're playing Michael Jordan's game. And that's Serena now. The serve, the forehand, the power, she plays at her speed. And, you know, there have been multiple Serena peaks. There was that time in her career, obviously, when she was just unbeatable earlier in her career, you know, 2002, 2003 range where just the athleticism, she could do anything on the court. Then, you know, 2008 to 2010 range, it was sort of, maybe even 2008 to 2012 range, it was just the body, the mind, the physicality, it all matched up at that point, and you just have this peak specimen of Serena. And then it's the post-prime, it's that she still just does so many things so well, she understands how to leverage her strengths into exposing her opponent's weakness and just that know-how, that wherewithal, it, it gets her through so many matches. And yet you're right, in those slam finals, something's different. I mean, maybe it's the fact that these young players are so talented that they can just do so many different things. And you do have to keep in mind at the end of two weeks, Serena is 38 years old. The recovery isn't going to be like it was in 2009, in 2010. Um, but at the same time, that wherewithal, the, that, the fact that she, there's no scenario she hasn't faced before, you're absolutely right. As long as she is on the court, she's a threat to win regardless of the season. So I would agree with you there. She's also, I mean, she's one of the best thinkers, I think, in, in tennis. And she is completely underrated for her strategy and her ability to, uh, you know, her tennis smarts. Um, but I will say that... Uh, you know, she's had also some of the dramas that uh, have marked her career came during the, the 2010s. The Stoser match, uh, the U.S. Open, you know, they seem to come at the U.S. Open. You know, obviously the Naomi Osaka match, even the losing to Roberta Vinci. Like, that's not about tennis talent. That's not about tennis smarts. That was, uh, that was a mental block, and I think she her passion for the game and, you know, it's almost unrivaled uh, her, uh, her spirit, you know, that can, that can be a little bit of a two edged swords. And if you're, if you get that emotionally involved in a match, then it's also possible that that can come in and bite you in the the wrong times. And um, I think that, I think there there has been, maybe not in the uh, most recent U.S. Open final, but in, in other finals, I think there has been, or semifinals, just, 
some, uh, you have to say like, you know, nerves, nerves come into it. And I know that happened with, with Martina Navratilo in the latter stages of her career, that of course she was still a better player than some people on the other side, but you know that you have, you know, a shorter time on the end. And I think it's happening with Roger Federer too. Like, you know, you have a shorter, much shorter, you know, many fewer opportunities to win these incredible, uh, make these incredible accomplishments. And, and that just plays on your head. And tennis is, uh, you know, it is the most mental, mental actual sport. Cause yeah. I don't really consider golf a sport, you know, it's, it's just, <laughs> it's up there. So it's up, yeah. literally up there anywhere. And I also no, want to yeah. add one other thing that she was the only American male or female to be number one, the only American, um, to other than than uh uh sloan stevens to win a grand slam the only american woman to um was she the only one to have a baby and come back other players had babies but was she the only american woman to come back in singles i think so and uh, uh, i'm not sure she had 236 weeks at number one which was amazing yeah, just an incredible decade. And it's funny, that here's our transition. You talked about her having no real rival this decade. Uh, not a rival, but someone who she always was competing with growing up and someone you know who helped push her to get where she is. The next story I want to talk about, uh, Venus Williams, who you talk about the mental aspect of the sport and how important it is, how it allows you to thrive. In 2010, Venus Williams started the season at age 29. And, you know, over these next 10 years, you know, she played uh, 10 full seasons really on tour. And that's despite the fact, you know, that's while developing um, the the name of what she has exactly is escaping me. But that's through all these off court. Yeah, thank you, Sojourn. So all of these different medical concerns off the court, all of her own personal things off the court. Um, Despite all that, did she win a singles Grand Slam? but she did win four doubles grand slams she won a gold medal in doubles she made two single slams finals in 2017 at the australian open at wimbledon she did that at age 37 i mean that's an incredible accomplishment she ended the uh the the year in the top 10 three times this decade uh twice of which she did or i guess all three considering above the age of 30 i mean venus had a great decade as well Yep, she absolutely did. Um, and like you said, especially considering what she had to go through offseason, her age, and um, the uh, being sort of overshadowed by, by her kid sister, she I think she had a really remarkable decade. Is it the de- decade that she would have wanted to have um, going into the year 2010? Absolutely not. She... End of the year, 2009, ranked six. She um, was uh, competitive in multiple majors and, you know, of course, had been the number one player in the world the, the earlier in the previous decade. Um, but I think she reached uh, number two in the world, the only other player to be in the top two um, among Americans, male or female. She won the uh, WTA Elite Trophy, which isn't the same as the year-end championship, but it's a, high, it's a good title. She ended up winning like eight titles, I think, which is more than any other uh, woman other than Serena Williams among Americans. Uh, if it weren't for Serena, she probably would have had the best 
best woman's American woman's uh, career. But yeah, for her high lofty standards, it wasn't as good. But you know, I think people having an autoimmune disorder like she had, um, having some injury problems like she had, uh, being anywhere near the top fifty at her age right now is is remarkable and uh yeah um the fact that, that she had the 2017 season and we'll talk a little bit more about how crazy that 2017 season was but the fact that she was able to finish in the top five in 2017 is uh just um one of the more impressive uh accomplishment accomplishments for an older athlete that, that you'll see yeah and you you talked about that uh elite cup trophy she has she also made a final of a world of the world tour finals in 2017 uh in terms of her biggest titles of the decade outside of that WTA cup she won in Dubai in 2010 she also won in Tokyo in 2015 and again uh you look at you know the the slam performances four quarterfinals, three semifinals, two finals appearances in the singles side at least this decade. I mean, no, you're right. Compared to the 2000s, she had a much better aughts than 2010s. And, you know, that's still not—you shouldn't take anything away from her. A, she's a seven-time Grand Slam singles champion. Uh, To get those seven slams is a testament to how good she was in the 2000s. And it's not her fault— that Serena is maybe the greatest female tennis player, maybe just the greatest tennis player period ever. And like that she had a second peak and a third peak and a fourth peak that speaks to how rare she is. But yeah, Venus Williams sustained excellence. We talk about those top 10 finishes. I mean, outside of that, look, 2012, uh, she finished 24th, 2013, 49th, 2014, 19th, uh, 2016, 17th, 2018, 38th. That's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven years in the top 50 above the age of uh, 30. I mean, that's, that's phenomenal. Yep. Um, she also had some good success in doubles. She won a grand slam. I mean, all of the doubles basically was with her sister, although she won the uh, silver at Rio and mixed in 2016. Um, she actually was number one in the world, which I didn't realize until just looking it up in doubles in 2010. So um, yeah, <laughs> that's, impressive and unusual and um uh yeah and she's gonna go out there again in 2020 and i don't know if she'll be able to make the olympics this year she's got uh a lot of really young talent and older talent um who are in the you know kind of clogging up the rankings for american women right now but uh you know it'd be nice if they gave us sort of a, a legacy entry wild card for her even though she's not from an underrepresented nation um because she's one of the one of you know one of the best tennis Olympians that we've had. She's won four gold medals in her career, um, and you know she's still pretty much competitive in any match she plays. Yeah, and I don't think anyone would expect her the way we would want, or maybe unfortunately expect Serena to compete for single slams starting twenty twenty. But I mean, it's going to be age forty for Venus, and I know. You know, she has talked about how she wants to play the 2020 Olympics. You can only imagine how fun it would be for us fans to see her and Serena play doubles one more time together. Or just, you know, I watched the 2016 Olympics. I watched Venus and Rajiv Ram win that silver medal and mixed, and she really seemed to love playing with Rajiv. I mean, they were so good. They happened to lose to a fellow American team in the finals in Jack Sock and Bethany Maddox-Sands, who we will, I'm sure, talk about later on in this podcast. But yeah, it, it, that would just be 
you know, that would be how you want to see Venus not go because she can play as long as she wants, but you would just love to see her on that Olympic stage one more time, being the representative ambassador, not just for tennis, but for, you know, America that she has been over her career. Yeah, she did have fun playing with Rajiv. I don't think she really appreciated Rajiv too much after that. that <laughs> no, Rajiv <laughs> had some bad misses in that, that third set that uh, uh, I, I don't know if uh, if uh, that relationship survived intact. I could be wrong, hopefully. <laughs> but yeah, she may, he may have cost her that, that last goal. Yeah, I, I, I mean, look, if she's saying, hey, Jack, do you want to play? Do I think she's cornering him? I would. Um, yeah. But yeah, that that's fair. Huh, I don't know. So I guess when you're looking back from Venus this decade, I, I mean, actually, don't tell me this yet because we'll reveal our top 10 men and women of the decade later on. But, you know, as you're looking back from these 2010s for Venus, uh, what are your you know final thoughts on her? Um, just she I think we talked a little bit about how Serena became a, a global icon this last decade. Venus really became a sort of a sentimental it sounds a little disrespectful but like just a a real tennis fan icon like she or favorite you know she became this uh elder stateswoman beloved where she went which was not the case earlier in her career or very early in her career yes but the 20 the 2000s were very rough um for a lot of reasons with her relationship with the tennis establishment, even though that was the year that she uh, led um, the led the crusade for uh, equal prize money at, at Wimbledon and all the majors, which I think helped solidify her. Uh, I think helped bring her where she is now, which is absolutely, I think almost, almost universally beloved, of course, not beloved by, by all, but um just this sort of sentimental figure that uh, is incredibly popular, incredibly funny. We got to see a lot more of her personality this decade. And um, yeah, I, I think that's my number one takeaway that she became sort of the, the real queen of, uh, even as her sister was dominating, she became um, this, this, uh, I don't have the right word for it. This sort of, um, I don't know, grand, grand empress of, of, of the sport. Statesman. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. No, I I think that's completely fair. And, you know, I got the chance to be in the Cincinnati press room this year for the Western and Southern. And, you know, I haven't been in many and it's not like I'm this expert, but there are about three people who came in who really commanded, maybe four, who commanded your attention, who you could just tell these were superstars and it was Federer, it was Djokovic, it was Maria Sharapova, and it was Venus. And you were just like, these four, the way they carry themselves, their figure, their posture, just all of these different things. She is a superstar. And I think one of the biggest questions of the 2010s, because Serena and Venus, getting the, the fact that they were getting into their 30s, a lot of the search was often, who's going to be the next great American superstar? Who's going to emerge as the post-Williams ambassador for American tennis? And given that she started the decade as the number, you know, she reached as high as the number five junior, 
junior in the ITF junior rankings. Uh, she cracked the top 100 for the first time in the year-end rankings in 2011. I think a player a lot of people had circled was Sloane Stephens, who's the next storyline we want to talk about. Uh, because Sloane Stevens, outside of Serena, only American female player to win a single slam. Um, and she was, I mean, the way she played, uh, you know, it was a, a steady ascent up to, I, I don't know, when she reached end of the year, number 12 in 2013. Uh, and then it it kind of, yeah, steady up till 2013. Yeah, till 2013. And then there was a dip. And then 2017 and 2018 happened, and you're like, okay, she's coming. You know, she's 24, 25, 26. This is the Sloan Stevens we're going to get. And then 2019 happens, and you're just like, with Amanda Nisimova, with Sophia Kennan, with Coco Goff, with Cece Bellis, with Madison Keys, even, who's a little bit younger, but right around her age. Uh, you have to wonder for Sloane Stevens. You know, I mean, she's one of the players. She is one of the definitive storylines of 2010's American tennis because you have to wonder if her, not that her window has closed, but just that there are so many other great American talents right now heading into the 2020s that it's going to be hard for her to really stand out above them because they are all so great as well. Well, we're not talking about the 2020s right now. So <laughs> just in terms of her, you know, basically her entire career, um, and she's the first player that we talked about whose entire career has been this decade. Um, and I don't think that, um, you know, people were getting ex- sort of excited. There are some flashes of Sloan Stevens going into the 2010s um, as a junior, as uh, a young professional. There was definitely some, she has some pizzazz about her, some some flashes, but there was no nobody had any idea what to like how to project her career really um she'd never played the the main draw of a of a major uh she was good but she wasn't like the most precocious youth she wasn't winning titles at age 15 or 16 um i first saw her at the i want to say i mean i i've been i've been sort of tracking her a little bit I first saw her in person at the 2012 U.S. Open. She was, um, was it 2012 or 2011? Anyway, she was uh, she was a young American. She was um, unranked. She beat Francesca Schiavone in the first round, and then I saw her play in person against uh, uh, Tatiana Malik in the uh in the second round the german player and uh she won a really exciting three set match to set up a a third round match with anna ivanovich and it was that tournament i think that really got people um you know to realize that this is possibly the next big thing in american tennis and we the only thing that we'd had sort of resembling that in the 10 years before like um a real up and coming player who could potentially, you know, rise and do great things. We really didn't have that before Sloan. And, and uh, we had a little bit of that in Melanie Udan, but of course her star kind of shone brightly for, for a couple of tournaments and then, and then fizzled out. But, but Sloan was the first young American to come around since Serena Williams um, to, to show flashes of, Central greatness and uh did she deliver on that in this decade uh, yeah i mean kind of 
kind of she did. Uh, certainly not in a sustained way, not as much as some of her peers like like uh, um, Halep or I guess you would consider Muguruza kind of a peer. Um, but, you know, she won a, she has a Grand Slam title and, and uh, um, Plushkova doesn't. So, uh, yeah, I think that her, her decade was great. He was my favorite player throughout the decade. And, you know, that caused a lot of, uh, a lot of heartbreak and, and mental strain <laughs> and probably it was the reason for my seven ulcer operation, but, um, no, I didn't have any ulcer operation, you know, <laughs> but it was, uh, it was, it was quite a journey and, uh, you know, she became kind of controversial. She was the first player, I think first American younger than Serena to beat Serena Williams. Uh, the 2013 Australian Open, and that's when it really looked like, oh, this was going to be potentially a huge decade for her. And she didn't deliver on that promise, but she definitely delivered on on the promise that we saw when she was first entering the top hundred. Um, and uh, she paved the way, I think, for a lot of these younger players who kind of burst out of the shadows that that, that Serena and Venus, um, and before that, Davenport and Capriati uh, had over over the sport. Um, the first newer generation player to to make it and i think that put a lot of weight on her and as a, as a fellow black woman i think that she had um some some difficulties you know in the sport around you know what she represented to a lot of people and uh the narratives around her became really problematic for a while but she uh she, she had enough highlights that, that i uh, I think she can look back on this decade and be proud of what she accomplished. Yeah, you talked about it. Um, and by the way, that was an, I, the reason you're on this podcast is because you did more justice to Sloan Stevens' decade than I ever could right there. Um, the only things I'd add, just a reminder to listeners, she won a Grand Slam 2017 U.S. Open. She beat Madison Keys to do it. Uh, she's also made that final in 2018 where she was up a set on Simona Halep, Halep winning that match was a real turning point, one of the big swings of the decade because she, she loses that. She could easily become one of the biggest what-ifs um, of the 10 years. Um, but Sloan, you know, so the one win, the one final, uh, another semifinal, three quarterfinals at the Slams, that's not great. Of course, she was a part of the Fed Cup winning team in 2017 for the U.S. She made the WTA finals in 2018, a Miami title to her name as well, final uh, in Canada, semifinal there as well, semifinal Cincy, semifinal Madrid. I mean, outside of probably grass, which is something she's always struggled on, at least outside of that 2013 quarterfinal at Wimbledon, uh, she's been really good across multiple surfaces. And you're, yeah, you're right. To to expect a Serena Williams to emerge, especially, you know, because fans of American tennis are probably fans of both American men and American women. Like on the American men's side, we have no slam champions. On the American women's side, we, yeah, exactly. We, yeah, exactly. We have one guy who's done it. Uh, John Isner made a semifinal. That was really it. This 2010s. Like, oh, outside. whoa, 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 whoa. Am I wrong? Oh, and query, and query. Wow. Am I right let's now? See. Am I yeah, still let's wrong? Start, let's start the entire podcast from the very beginning because that was such a bad mistake that we're gonna have to. <laughs> well, you know, we have recorded a two-hour podcast and lost <laughs> all of the audio before, so, so don't even jinx it. Don't even bring that up. Um, yeah. 
But yeah, I mean, so for Sloan, value the fact that she's won of uh, a Grand Slam title. But you talked about, I guess this is the question I want to ask to you is because you look at her, you talk about who she's competitive with, uh, who her peers are in American tennis. I mean, especially these past five years, it's really been her and Madison Keys. And we've talked about Sloan Stevens' ups and downs, and her ups may have been a little bit higher than Keys. But I mean, you could argue Keys has had the steadier ascent, right? She cracked the top 50 ending the year at 37 in 2013. And since then, she's gone 31, 18, 8, 9, 17. And she's going to end this year in the top 20 as well, uh, right around, I think, number 13. I mean, who's had the steadier decade? And I, I guess if you were a player, which decade would you prefer? The ups and downs of Sloan or the steady, maybe not quite as high, but still pretty damn good from Madison Keys over these past couple of years? Because well, that's the obvious comparison, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, Sloan definitely. But Sloan's also a couple of years older, um, mm-hmm. and but she definitely had the higher highs. And um, uh, Madison... You know, she also had she's also had dips. She hasn't maybe had quite the ranking dip, but Sloan's main ranking dip came when she had you know she was out of the game because of a foot injury. But you know, Keys has had plenty of injury issues herself. Um, she's won more big tournaments, I think, uh, or been in the finals of more big tournaments. Uh, but the the highs aren't as close, and and Sloan, you know, she was actually kind of steady during the entire decade. Uh, with the exception of 2019, where she still finished, I think, in the top 30, and with the exception of you know being being injured, so I don't think she was as uneven as you paint her. She just didn't. We saw her highest capability, where um, it looked like during stretches it, it would be almost impossible to beat her when she was you know playing a set or two at, at her highest level and. Um, her athleticism, her power, her uh, defense, her ability to switch from defense to offense um, is so electric that, uh, you know, Madison, as good as she is, can't in her variety. You know, she she couldn't quite match all of that. But, yeah, I don't think it's close. I think the bigger question is, would you rather have uh, a Sloan Stevens career or a uh, – a Carolina Pushkova career because they're more on the same sort of, uh, I think they're a little bit closer in age and uh, Pushkova has clearly had more titles, more weeks in the top five. She's been number one. Sloan hasn't, um, but she struggled at majors far more overall than, than Sloan has. And she hasn't won the title. So I think that I actually posted a blog post about this, I think five years ago, like, before Sloan had won a major, whose career would you rather have? Because Pushkova uh, at that point, I don't think, had reached the major semifinal um, and Sloan had. But, uh, yeah, I think that's a better question. What about you? Would you rather have had Pushkova's consistent top five presence or Sloan's major championship? Uh, you're killing me. Um, as an Andy Murray fan, I just empathize with Pushkova probably a little bit more. Uh, so that's just the type of career I've always been attracted to is why can you get so close but not get over the edge? You're right. Sloan's ups and downs, a lot can be explained with injuries and just various fluctuations on and off the court. Um, but, ooh, 
I don't know. I'm fascinated by Carolina Pliskova. Imagining having that fire in your belly still. Just at that, just the ability to be like, I need to win this. That motivating factor. It would help you get up for all of those early morning workouts. You're like, well, I need to freaking do this. And I, I, I'm the sort of insane person who would like to obsess over that sort of thing. Okay. Yeah, I mean, Sloan obviously was critiqued a lot for what seemed to be a lack of that fire in the belly. Um, sometimes seeming to not care uh, in matches. A lot of times seeming to not care. Weird body language. And, of course, her really disappointing 2019 after such a good 2018 um, where she was the first non-Williams player to be uh, to, I think, finish the year um, as the best American woman. I could be wrong about that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I I think I'd rather have the ma- I, I think I'd rather have the major title. And it wasn't because it wasn't a fluke major title like. Yeah, I, I would rather have Pushkova's career than, say, uh, um, uh, Eva Maioli or something like that, you know, <laughs> with a complete fluke and, and really not much else to say. But uh, a slam final that basically backed up her ability at slam championship, a year-end championship, a Miami title, um, I, I'd I'd rather I'd rather be Sloan Stevens than than Pushkova, but I think it's a really fascinating argument and can can go either way. I mean, you know, I think when we do look for it, I think she still has she's back. Isn't she back with Kamal Murray? I think she mm-hmm. still has some. She's still in good shape. I think she still has some surprise um, wins ahead of her. I, I don't know if she'll ever be in another major final, but you know, I, I, I can't count her out yet. For uh, listeners at home who are doing the over-unders, and my only references was 0.5, we hit the over. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, as we all expected. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's the big thing for Sloan is that she's still 26 years old. I mean, there could still be five to you know eight really, really good years of tennis left in her given the nature of uh, just the way tennis, it seems like you can continue to play much more into your 30s than you used to. And that's something to monitor, right, is she still definitely has good tennis left in her. It's just whether a question of can her health, her uh, her mental, her confidence, all these things line up again because we've seen it happen before. You know whose career I think probably tracks the best with uh, Sloan Stevens? Um, I think it would be Marin Cilic. Hmm. Both have one major at the U.S. Open, out of nowhere. Both uh, Chilich has one additional Slam final, but um, both have that additional Slam final. Both have won one Davis or Fed Cup, and both have reached the number three ranking in the world, but haven't gotten higher than that. And um, have other times been top ten, but other times languished outside of the top ten. I feel like, though, Chilch's floor on a per-year basis is a little bit higher than some of Sloan's floors. Uh, you feel like that, or is that true? I think oh, – I'll look it up right now. I feel like Chilich <laughs> rare because Chilich rarely drops out of the top 15, right? Like he's all – let me look at these career-end rankings right now. Marin Chilich career statistics. This is some live research for you podcast Ooh, listeners, exciting. which you all love. Here we go. Yep, from 2013 – we'll go from 2010. I mean, we'll go from 20, uh, 2009 uh, all the way up. He finished the year 14, 14, 22, 15, 37 in 2013, but then 9 in 2014. 13, 2015, 6, 6, and 7 before this season. 
and then this season don't can't say before the season he's 39 now okay but the 10 years before that i i'm saying the ten, from 09 to 2018 he had one year or i guess two years outside of the top 20 but one of them was 22 and it was really just that 2013 season where he missed i think it was one slam but he also missed canada cincinnati and shanghai with injuries okay so a little bit higher a higher floor definitely um, so I know, so I don't I, think I know. So okay, you're right. You're right. You're right. You got me. You got me. Um, yeah, Sloan the over under fart noise is now also over. <laughs> Sloan had, um, four top or three top. Yeah. Four, sorry, three top 15 finishes. And other than that was, uh, basically outside of the top 30. So you're right. I think Marin probably had a little bit better, uh, and, and one more titles as well. Um, so, but the high for the highs, I think that they kind of track. Yeah, and the flip side is she's only twenty six. Right. Her, she still could have five really good years over the next course of time. We hope you enjoyed part one of our Great Shot Podcast Best of the Decade conversation with Jonathan Kelly talking about the American storylines of the 2010s from the tennis world. Look, again, Jonathan and I, as I mentioned at the top, have a ton more of this discussion to be heard by you listeners. Over the next two parts, we'll get into a lot of the ATP storylines. We'll rank our top 10 minutes women from the U.S. of the decade in tennis, talk about a little bit of a look ahead towards the 2020s, what we saw at the end of this decade that has us either encouraged, positive, or maybe a little bit apprehensive as we look towards the next decade of American tennis. Uh, If you you want to expand beyond the immediate tennis world, you're not ready to get by 2019. Don't worry. You can find 2019 review uh, season in review content as well as you're ready for 2020. You want a preview of that action. All of that will be able to be found on our website crackedrackets.com on the mini break moving forward we plan to start our 2020 offseason preview because it'll be on us before we know it so we're going to be doing that over the month of december obviously this best of the decade series will keep going here on the crack interviews front you guys have seen our college contender series myself matt sequoia chris halliores every week on the mini break talking about one different team breaking down their prospects for 2020 on Cracked Interviews. We've had the chance to talk to the coaches of the teams we've discussed, TCU, Mississippi State, UNC, USC, all of those coaches thus far. We've got Baylor coming up this next week, so be on the lookout for that as well. You know I always love talking to Coach Boland, and I'm sure he will be kind enough to grace us with his presence, so looking forward to that. We've also gotten the chance to talk to players, Ashley Leahy, Paul Jubb, uh, Estela Perez-Somariba, Keegan Smith. Uh, so, you know, you want to hear from the players' perspective. And, of course, our wealth of interviews on the Pro Tour, J.J. Wolf, Marcos Giron, Tommy Paul, all the next-gen guys, uh, Coco Vandeway, CeCe Bellis, Bethany Maddox-Sands as well. All of that, again, found on our website, CrackedRackets.com. None of that content happens without our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westhoff, who I always have to give a huge shout-out to. And, as always... I mean, it's a three-part GSP. You know they have a f*** of an editing job to do. But with that in mind, if you need the more immediate updates, social media, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, you know where to find us at Cracked Rackets. Uh, with, uh, leave the five-star rating. Leave the five-star review. You know the deal by now. You'll make a very happy. I, I give thanks always for our Cracked Rackets fans, but 
I will be thinking of being even more thankful over these next couple of weeks as I see those ratings and reviews numbers start to rise. But with that in mind, for my lovely co-host, Jonathan Kelly, for our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westhoff, and from our entire team at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I am your host, Alex Gruskin. Hopefully you enjoyed your holiday weekend. Hopefully this tennis got you through that. And you know what we always like to tell our listeners as we face, oh my gosh, it's already December. But hey great shot and we will see you for part two thanks everyone